So if the answer to what's the worst that can happen is something you can live with, and you really want to do this thing, then my advice is go for it. And they're typically prisoners. They're prisoners of fear. They're prisoners of insecurity. They're prisoners of their pension. Prisoners of their mortgage. But don't be, don't be a prisoner. You know, if I could give anybody one, one ticket to go anywhere in the world once, it would be Costa Rica. We're just an ordinary family but we did an extraordinary thing. Hey guys, and welcome to episode four of Dear Everyone. When I started this podcast, I envisioned bringing on people that had traumatic experiences in their life and for them to share their recovery, share where they are now and thus share their message with the world. But I've taken a gamble with Ian in this episode. Ian's addicted to travel and he's not running his human resource and health and safety business. He's always planning his next trip and the biggest trip of all was the year his family went around the world in 2008. Him, his wife and his two children. Ian's story is inspirational, educational, very entertaining. I'm not lying when I say I was beaming from ear to ear throughout the whole episode. Um, he talks about his stories, and I quote, from Bali to Beijing, Edinburgh to Ecuador, and Madagascar to Machu Picchu. The stories are amazing, the experiences sound amazing, and his message is amazing. If you're into your travel, if you've done a lot of travelling, if travelling is something you want to do, if you've just had enough and you're fed up of your life and you just want to, you know, close up shop and, and see the world, this is a really, this is a great episode. Um, I hope you enjoy it. I hope the gamble pays off. Be sure to do all the usual stuff, like, subscribe. I hope you enjoy it. Without further ado, this is Dear Everyone with Ian Pillbeam. Ian, thank you for joining me. Absolute pleasure. Good to be with you, Chad. So my very first question, uh, and it always gets people thinking, Actually, I lie. There's two questions. No, there's three questions. Who are you? What's your message and why? Okay, who am I? Well, I would describe myself as a husband, a father, a entrepreneur, a traveller and an author. And I guess I... That's have, a lot to unpack there. Yeah, I guess I've, assemb- I've uh, accumulated those uh, those job titles over the the course of the last 30 years, um, starting starting with husband. Um, but these days, I'd probably call myself a travel author. I'm a bit of the, the brief one. My, um, my message um, is the world is your classroom. The world is your classroom. So I look forward to chatting with you about that. And the reason for that, where did, where did, I, where did I come up with that, that belief that the world is your classroom? Well, it goes back to the start of the the story that ended up being in my book, Are We There Yet? Um, and it's the story of taking my kids backpacking around the world for a year. Um, or I should say, my wife and I t- taking our kids backpacking around the world for the year. Or maybe I should say my wife, wife taking the kids and me around the world for a year. <laughs> whichever way you want to cut it... Um, it's what we did, um, and we learnt that uh, you don't have to go to school to learn one heck of a lot about the world and about yourself. So that's why, uh, that's my message. The world is your classroom. Amazing. So just for the listeners, um, can you confirm when I say that you quit a secure job during a recession to go around the world of an eight-year-old and a 10-year-old? So very, very nearly right. I did put a secure job. I didn't know we were about to enter a recession when I did it. And thank goodness I didn't because it changed all our lives. And I think if I'd have known that we were about to enter that recession, maybe I'd have been a little bit more cautious and, and not have done it, or at least not done it in the, the way that we did. You know, Maybe it'd been a career break or something instead. But um uh, yeah, it uh, it did end up being a re- during a recession, um, which uh, 
led to unintended consequences, of course, because when we got back, um, we had very little money in the bank and I had no job. Uh, and there was a recession. But uh, hmm. you know. have, you, um, have you always had a kind of a drive inside you to travel? Did you travel a lot as a youngster? No. First time I got on a plane, I would have been 17. Um, oh, okay. Different world back then, to be fair. Um, yeah. You know, we didn't have the same access to... To, to cheap airlines, etc. When I was seventeen, I I studied languages at, at school and, and at university. Um, so I'd been to France a couple of times, but I never interrailed. Uh, I never backpacked. I think kibbutzes in Israel were a thing back there and then as well as some of my peers did. I did none of that. Um, and then when I met my wife, um, we did a little bit. You know, we went, um, I talk about this in the book, how we went to uh, Tunisia on a all-inclusive uh, package holiday and just couldn't wait to get out of the compound. And we were booking side trips and overnight trips to the Atlas Mountains. And I think we realized then that we'd maybe met kindred spirits who, who wanted to travel. Uh, and Anne had, although she'd not really traveled either, her parents were language teachers and they'd done an exchange year when she was 10. So she'd learned the benefits of spending time as a, as a kid overseas. So I think that, that probably helped to fuel some of her belief that this would work. Um, but yeah, we, we, we had fairly, you know, family holidays. Um, I did a, a, a charity hike in South Africa um, five years before the trip, as we call it, the year away, the trip. Um, and that, I think, awakened something in me, um, definitely. Uh, and then the holidays, after, a couple of the holidays after that were a little bit more adventurous. We we went to Sri Lanka and Morocco. We did a, an all-inclusive in St. Lucia, which, again, this was with the kids. Again, we couldn't wait to get out of the compound. We hated being locked inside. Um, so we were, yeah, starting to discover that there was something there waiting to be to be unleashed, as it subsequently was. So tell me about the um, this trip then. Let's uh, let's jump straight into it. Tell me about the lead up to it. So the kind of the weeks and months before this trip was it something you had planned or did something? I mean, in my head, I'm envisioning something went wrong wrong at work, and you're like, ah, sod this, just walked <laughs> off and uh, decided you were going to travel the world. No, it was it was better than that. So it was nothing to do with work. Um, we were on holiday uh, in uh, southern Turkey with the kids. So again, just a package holiday. Um, mm-hmm. And we were in a bar one night and I said to them, where do you fancy going for your next holiday, kids? Expecting them, and they were seven and nine at this time, expecting them to say, can we come back here, please, or something like that. Um, instead of which they said, we have a think about that, Daddy, and come back to you. Which is quite an unusual answer, I think, for kids at that age. So they came back the next night, same bar, and I asked them if they'd had a think, and they produced a sheet of paper out of one of their pockets. And it was a list of 10 countries. And each country, almost bar one, had an animal next to it. So it was something like China panda bears, kangaroo, uh, Australia kangaroos, Madagascar lemurs, Peru llamas, Africa lions, or some, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember just looking at this list and thinking, wow, that looks amazing. I fancy that myself. Um, so the next morning we were, I guess, back in the same bar. And um, I said to Anne, I wonder if you can get around the world ticket for families. I knew you could you can get it for yourself, particularly as a young person. But can you get it for families? So we we cranked up the the computer that was in this Turkish bar in two thousand and seven, and probably probably fed it some coins to <laughs> make it work, uh, and discovered you could. And you know, I came three weeks after getting back from that holiday. I've started negotiating my exit from from that job that I loved. So it just kind of happened. It was obviously meant to happen, but it just, you know, we didn't go into that that holiday or into that bar knowing that it was even a possibility. Um, and there were, you know, we all talk these days about knowing your why. Um, and I think there was a context to that. And in a way, our why was not about travel. Our why was about family time. 
So we've gone through a, a difficult family time. Um, my mother-in-law got a terminal cancer diagnosis when she was 55, same age I am now. And shortly thereafter, her husband, who was 20 years older, got vascular dementia. So two properties came into one and she lived, they both lived with us. And then when she died, he lived with us. And his condition meant increasingly that we couldn't do what normal families with young kids do. You know, we couldn't just Saturday morning say, let's jump in the car and go to the go to the shop, the shopping. Sorry, what do we call it? I've, I've spoken to too many Americans recently. I'm going to say mall, and I know it's not that. <laughs> a, just shopping, a shopping center? Yeah, a go shopping, to the shopping yeah, center. Yeah, shopping center, yeah. We couldn't go to the cinema, all that sort of stuff, just because someone had to stay with him. So we knew that this was an opportunity to get that family time back. Um, plus, we knew that, you know, I, I said to Anna at the time, I said, look, we've, we've, we've inherited some money from your mum. We could put that in a, in a bond or a pension plan or the bank, and it can be part of our retirement plan. But what if we don't get there? You know, your mum didn't. Mm-hmm. What, what if we don't? Uh, so what we could do instead, we, we could do, invest it in this trip. And in doing so, we invest in ourselves as a family, so to get that family time back, but also we'll invest in each of us as individuals. And then I said, I've no idea what that means, but I guess we'll find out in about 10 years' time. And, you know, we're now slightly more than 10 years on, but we found out it impacted on all of us. Yeah. So I guess my next question is about fear then, because there's two things you're doing there that would bring a lot of fear into the average person. First being your job and not having anything set in the future. Um, and secondly, I guess this is more, this parents will kind of understand this more, nine and 10 year old. I mean, did you not have any fear about going around the world of a nine and 10 year old? Not necessarily that something bad may happen, but the fear that, you know, you've paid all this money, you've made all this change to go around the world and it ends up being not as great as you think it would be because of the kids? Yeah, great question. So um, the job, bear in mind, the recession hasn't happened. I haven't heard of Lehman Brothers. Um, So I did do a little bit of due diligence. And I remember going to see someone I knew and trusted who worked in a recruitment agency Am I mad? What do you and they said no. What, what year are we talking here? Sorry. What year are we talking here? We're 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 late two thousand seven at this point. Okay. So yeah. Just yeah, just pre the the, the two thousand eight crash. Um, you know, and they said, "Don't worry, Ian. There'll always be good job. There'll always be jobs for good people." Yeah, and yeah, I could have walked into another job very easily at that point. Um, so with the knowledge I had, that was fine. That was a good thing to do. In terms of the kids, um, we took, in fact, not just the kids, but actually our fam- our family security. Um, I remember Anne saying this phrase, which I now use quite a lot, which is, "What's the worst that can happen?" And it's a re- it's a really really powerful question to risk assess a decision you're considering. So if the answer to "What's the worst?" that can happen is something you can live with and you really want to do this thing, then my advice is go for it. If the answer is, oh, actually, that could well happen and it would be pretty poor, that would be a pretty shabby outcome or a pretty dangerous outcome, then maybe you shouldn't do it. So she said, well, what's the worst that can happen? Um, you can't get a job when we come back and we have to sell the house and downsize. And we went, actually... If that's what happens, we can live with that. Yeah. Um, in terms of the kids, um, what's the worst that can happen? They don't enjoy it, and we have to come. We have to come home. Yeah, we can live with that. What's the worst that can happen? Well, they might. Uh, they might get. They might die. <laughs> right. Yeah? yeah. And actually, there were two or three times on the trip when they nearly did. Right. But they were exactly the same sort of things that could have happened at home. You know, getting knocked off your bike is one example. It can happen anywhere, right? Uh, the 
the summer we're working all this out, um, there were a whole load of... I'm up in, um, in Scotland, in Edinburgh. Um, there were people going on their summer holidays from Glasgow Airport to Spanish beaches and someone drove a truck bomb into the, the um, check-in area at Glasgow Airport. So these things can happen anywhere. We weren't going to take them to crazy, dangerous places. So the answer to what's the worst that can happen is nothing worse than can happen at home. <laughs> so where did you start? What was the first place you went to? Uh, so we started in Cape Town. Um, so and I, I like bookends, Shaz. It's that's a, one of my foibles. So um, Cape Town, um, it, you know, very well-known city by the sea with an iconic mountain and wind forward 52 weeks uh, to answer your next question we ended in another funky little city by the sea with a great mountain called Rio de Janeiro um, and actually if you stand in, if you if you look at the map you can draw a line across the ocean from one to the other uh, so that was uh, that was quite a, quite a nice symmetry and South Africa was on their list of course they wanted you know an, animals being this this kind of core driver for what they wanted to do. Um, we were able to uh, do safari and, and Kruger and uh, go whale boat watching and all that sort of stuff. So it was, good. it was a good place to start. I know you pulled the kids out of school as well, didn't you, to yeah. do this. What do you think they learned from the trip? Um what do you think, Neb? I guess this goes back to your message, really, doesn't it? About the world being your school. What What did they learn? I'm not. I'm going to come to you and your wife after, but your kids in particular. Yeah, I think they. I mean, they learned. They learned some stuff, most of which they've probably forgotten. Um, but you know, in the context of being sort of primary school kids, you know, they they could read, they could write, they could assimilate, they could they've got basic maths. So everything we did and everywhere we went layered on top of that. So you can imagine how, you know, maths lessons. You know, my son Rory was doing the budget. He was doing currency conversion every day. So he was getting maths lessons. English, well, they were writing diaries every day, um, which they absolutely loved not. Um, so it was nagging parent territory, but they were <laughs> they were writing diaries. They were re they were reading books that they probably wouldn't have read at home. Uh, you know, my son's favourite childhood book is still a random book about a, something called a Kia K E A, which is a mountain parrot in New Zealand, um, and that was just yeah, he just fell in love with that book. Um, they were obviously learning about languages, about history, about culture, about. Uh, the natural world and geology, all sorts of stuff that they wouldn't necessarily have got in the classroom. And I think that breadth of breadth of curriculum at that age um, broadened their probably their academic abilities and their their curiosity. Um, and then I think they also learnt that the world's a big that there's a lot out there. So broaden their horizons, and sure enough, as soon as they reached the stage in their teens where they were old enough to go off on their own, then off they went. You know, so you know, I could reel off a, a long list of places: Ghana, back to South Africa, Philippines, India, um, Central America, Mexico, all places as that they've been to independently of us. That's amazing because you've kind of instilled that into them from a young age, especially when they were nine or ten. That's kind of the early years when the brain's still developing. For you to put something like that, even the skill set of being able to travel and the confidence into their mind so early, I'm sure they're going to reap the rewards kind of coming into their adult life. I think so. I did. Just, um, yeah, it is a skill set. You're absolutely right. I think yeah. it's a, I was talking about in my business about mindset and skill set. And I think they've got a mindset that the world the world's out there, um, and that things can happen, good and bad, but you just have to adapt. Um, but as I will say, the answer will emerge. Um, and then they've got some skill sets around actually being able to travel and keep yourself safe and put put itineraries together and plans and develop as things things change and you get new information 
which are all good life skills as well as, as travel skills. Yeah, definitely. And also you mentioned near-death experiences. I'm sure they learnt very early how not to die. <laughs> what, <laughs> what, what happened there? Yeah, so a um, couple of things in China. Um, so I, I write about it in the book, but basically just Rory turned right on a bike in a busy town and didn't see... So he went across a right turn and didn't see the bus turning right into him. And it was just one of those moments where I thought he's going under. He's definitely going under. But he didn't. Uh, but it was a that, that was a heart-stopping moment. Um, there, was a, there was a time when uh, my daughter was swimming, uh, snorkeling with um, sea lions in the Galapagos Islands, which sounds very exotic when you say it out loud. Um, and... Um, the waves got choppy. She started to struggle, and our guide had to rescue her, or she'd have, she'd have gone under. Mm. Um, but again, that can happen on a boat in the Greek islands. Yeah, yeah absolutely. On a, on a, on a two week holiday. Um, the other thing we had to manage was uh, was food. So well, first of all, we're all vegetarian. Um, so fortunately, my wife's a dietitian, which helped in making sure we got a nut- nutritionally sound year. Um, but Rory also has a nut, a nut allergy. Right, so yeah, okay. we had to take extra care to make sure that he was safe. Um, and he, when we were in uh, Bangkok, I remember sitting in, outside um, a little lunchtime restaurant, not too far from the Casa Road. And um, I asked the waiter whether the... Thai green curry had nuts in it. And I could tell from his answer that he didn't either understand the question or didn't know the answer, but was too embarrassed to tell me. So I just got lots of, yes, not kind of affirmative that it wasn't a problem, but I wasn't convinced. So I decided I had to get assertive and say very clearly and very loudly, if there are nuts in this, my son will die. To this day, Rory won't drip, won't eat Thai food. <laughs> it's just kind of that kind of moment has, uh, has yeah. stuck with him. Uh, probably not the best parenting ever, but hey ho. Um, I kept him. I kept him safe, which is the the main job. <laughs> I do. Um, I I read something in your in your bio that um, was quite cool. From Bali to Beijing, Edinburgh to Ecuador, Madagascar to Machu Picchu. That's right. I yeah. thought that was brilliant. Good what was your favourite city out of all of them, Ian? City. City's a tricky one. Um, let me think. I quite often get asked what country is favourite. Um, well, do you know city, what? Yeah. I'll, I'll make it easier for you. What's your favourite country? Okay. All right. And then let me think. I'll think where I can give you a city as well. <laughs> um, so my favourite, we all had different ones. It's interesting. So um, my wife's favourite was Japan. She loved that kind of fusion of East and West. Uh, my daughter's was Madagascar uh, because of the lemurs. Um, we had some great, great lemur moments. Rory's was New Zealand. I don't think because of the mountain parrot, but probably because it just felt a little bit like, little bit like home. Uh, and mine was Peru. So oh, wow. I always okay. loved Peru. And maybe, maybe actually my favourite city from that year might be Cusco, which is the crossroads, city of the crossroads of the Andes. So anybody that's backpacking through Peru, probably South America, but certainly Peru, will find themselves in Cusco. Um, and it's a, both a touristy and an authentic town. It's very high, it's high altitude. Um, and it's your base to go to places like Machu Picchu, uh, which is absolutely stunning. But I, I loved Peru. I'd always wanted to go. Um, and I think it's as simple as um, reading and watching Paddington Bear when I was a kid. And uh, Great Aunt Lucy came from deepest, darkest Peru. And I think that must have just planted something in my child, childhood imagination about this exotic, far-flung place. Um, and it didn't disappoint. Uh, it is so colourful, um, so, so historic. Um, just trying to I'm thinking I'm sure I described this better it better than that in the book actually let me just see how I described uh, 
Cusco. Did, uh, did you write this book during your trip? No. So I wrote blogs at the time, some mm-hmm. of which were good and some of which were absolutely rubbish. Um, but they did provide a basis for me to then write the book from uh, 10, 10, 12 years later on. So here we are, walking into the main square in Cusco, we instantly knew this was the South America we had always imagined. The vibrancy, the living history, the very feel of the place. Cusco is the tourist, or gringos as they call them, uh, as locals call them, capital of South America, as evidenced by the plethora of Irish and British bars around the Plaza de Armas. However, it is still quintessentially Peruvian. As a pal of ours said, Cusco rocks. Uh, most tourists come to Cusco to visit Machu Picchu and the Sacred Valley. A certain vibrancy comes from having tourists staying for just a day or two to see the sights, or alternatively just hanging out whilst recovering from a trek. Cusco has laid on everything they need. Outdoor shops for trekkers, more agencies than can be, than can be viable, more happy hours than can possibly be drunk, and what seems like thousands of souvenir stores. Uh, Cusco is very photogenic. The setting, the light, the colours and the characters combine to form a rich tapestry upon which photographers way better than we can weave their magic. You can even, for a soles or two, have your photo taken with a dressed up lamb, a kid, goat or human, alpaca or llama, wizened old lady in traditional costume or even an Inca prince. Yeah, I love the place. I could go back. Yeah, amazing. What was your favourite culture that you experienced? Mm. I sometimes get asked, what was your least favourite place? This is all about positives. And I'm going to use that to answer your question. So my least favourite place was Singapore. Okay. Because oh, of the, why? Because of the place we went to directly before it. And the place we went to directly before it was a Thai hill tribe. So this is on the border of Thailand and Myanmar or Burma. Mm-hmm. Um, and we went with a guy called Mr. Poo. Um, we went <laughs> just up, just us and two other um, Westerners. We went on this um, two-night, so three-day, two-night trek. And we stayed with um, villagers who had nothing. You know, pure subsistence living. Uh, we slept at night, uh, the first night, uh, on a wooden platform under a mosquito net, outdoors with um, hogs snorting underneath us. Um, they they built a toilet, especially for our visit, <laughs> which of course was a hole in the ground. They dug the hole, especially for us. Um, we had guides who um, were so kind with the kids. Uh, car- you know, carried my daughter, um, who would put their hand in the the sand on the river bank and pull out a frog in their hands that they'd pop in their their bags for tea back in the village that night. Um, and the the local kids were just so excited to see other kids that looked nothing like them, but actually, once they had a football in the hand or they got some flowers to make uh, poses, they were just like kids anywhere so these people were you know in a culture that they were they were maintaining uh, a hill tribe culture that they were maintaining for a long time it was a Karam tribe which I'm probably pronouncing wrong Uh, and it was just so authentic and and I'm always cautious Shaz when I'm describing cultures not to not in any way to be colonial or post-colonial yeah, you know, you can ultimately only observe what you see, and you're always conscious of your footprint as tourists and whether a show is being put on for your benefit. And I research. I went to ev- pretty much every travel agency in the the city of Chiang Mai to find this particular authentic eco trip, where each time this guy takes visitors it's a different family's turn to host them it's different family's time to be the guides um so there's genuine um benefits to the to the community great care was taken to make sure there was no environmental footprint left 
it just felt as as good as you could get whilst ultimately still being a tourist trying to stay safe and having a camera so i felt we got a good insight um into their their culture you know there was a was preparations going on for a wedding um and you know we saw granny who was in her 80s um working the the loom and they were grinding rice by hands with bread oh, it was it was it was fascinating fascinating yeah we really felt we were at a special place at a at a special time well, were they happy on the whole i would say there were everything that happens to humans was happening to them um you know it was interesting there was um there, there was a they followed a, their traditional religion and all the shape the shaman stuff um but the biggest building in the village was a was a christian church the mexican missionaries had brought in so there was all that kind of interplay going on um they there was one guy i remember who looked very very sad something had obviously happened to him like it can happen to anybody um but overall yeah i would say they were they were happy they looked yeah Living, living a simple life, but a life that worked. Uh, and of course, one challenge they were facing was the same as anybody else was um, depopulation. As some of the youngsters then head off to to get an education and, yeah, and yeah. don't come back because they they moved to the city, so they were facing that challenge. I have guesses in my head as to why, compared to that, you hated Singapore. <laughs> But I don't want to make any assumptions. Why did you hate Singapore? <laughs> it was just that contrast. Um, <laughs> Singapore, I don't know whether you've been to Singapore or not, but uh, and I'm sure it's great. Um, but obviously, it's a it's a it's a city and a country that's driven by the by the dollar. Um, and it was just that contrast from people who were happy with nothing to people who looked fairly unhappy with everything. Um, so yeah, that was the main reason. There was a bit of timing as well because it was the Singapore was our last stop on our three months in Asia. Um, and we were about to then go and head off to Australia. So there was probably a little bit of uh, trepidation going on at the same time. But uh, yeah, it was just the contrast. Yeah. Would you say um, Would you say the people in this hill tribe, they were the nicest people you've met out of your trip as well? Because my original question was your favourite culture, but mm. not necessarily who your favourite kind of collective of people were. Yeah, they would. they would certainly be up there. Um, one of the favourite people I met, who I think was reflective of a of a microculture, was a guy in Madagascar. Um, so this guy um, was part of a village community who were hunting ring-tailed lemur um, for as part of their subsistence limit, and he realised that if they kept going, there wouldn't be any ring-tailed lemur left. And he managed to persuade the the villagers to conserve the lemur, uh, create a reserve, and then get tourists to come and see them. Uh, almost in effect, I was in Costa Rica earlier this year, almost what the Costa Rican government did with, with, with uh, wildlife there, uh, where now you've got one in 30% of Costa Rica is now a national park. But in Madagascar, a very small area, uh, this park danger, this guy had, had done this, and we went with him at lunchtime with the kids. There were a few handfuls of other tourists there and had the opportunity to hand feed bananas to, ring, to wild ring-tailed lemurs. And we were happy that this was done in a way that was environmentally sustainable and it wasn't impacting on the, the animals. Um, and then he said to us when we got back to our hotel, he said, would you like to come back at dusk? The park's closed would you like to come back with your kids? So, yeah, of course we would. No charge, he says. Just come back, I'll take you back. Uh, so we went back with the kids. The place was shut. And we just sat with groups of ring-tied lemurs as they sat and watched them settle down for the night on, on, on rocks with the sun setting. It was just, it was magical. Absolutely magical. And he didn't have to do that. And of course we tipped him heavily, but that wasn't the point. Um, he just wanted our kids to have that special experience um, and that's one of the things that I think having kids with you when you travel can do, it can open doors that aren't necessarily otherwise there I don't think he would have done that if it had just been me and my wife mm. so yeah, he was a 
he was a special guy and reflective of a of a an area there, a little community that was doing the right thing. Magical moments. Do you have any more that sticks out? Because those are the things, especially with me, kind of every good trip I've been on, there's always been that one minute, two minute period where you sit and you're reflecting like, yeah, this is what life's all about. Whether it's, you know, in the middle of a boat underneath the stars or or just sat on a bit or wherever it is, there's always that one moment. I can imagine you had quite a few, but are there any that stick out? Yeah, so there were... We were away for a year, and when I got back, I did a list of those, and there were 100 days that were standouts, and then the other 265 were traveling and doing the washing, uh, <laughs> right, <laughs> right in the diaries and playing in the pool yeah. and all that. So let me, let me just give you, and actually, um, when I came back and I started um, trying to find a job again, uh, and I'd be sat in the waiting room for an interview or a, to see an agency or whatever... I'd pull that list out of my pocket and it would just get me in the right happy place again before I went into a, a, a nerve-wracking situation. Um, so watching the sunrise at Machu Picchu was a magical, magical moment. I have always questioned this, okay? So I've seen it everywhere and a lot of people do it, but the only reference point I have is photos and obviously photos, I can imagine, don't do it justice so finally i get to ask someone what is it that is so magical about sunrise in mashapishu compared to sunrise in i don't know daventry <laughs> well it's not daventry um, i've never <laughs> been to daventry so maybe that's <laughs> nor have i is the first thing i can think of um so one of the things that i love about travel and going to somewhere that you've seen photos of or even what's seen on youtube is you've only seen it. You haven't heard it. You haven't sensed it. You haven't smelt it. But you also haven't seen what's around it. You don't get the 360. Um, so, you know, I've never been to the pyramid in Egypt, but everybody says it's very dis- really disappointing because of what's near it. In fact, mm-hmm. it's kind of, you know, yeah. stuck at the back of a housing estate in the outskirts of Cairo or whatever it is. Um, so with Machu Picchu, there's kind of a, there's a build-up to it. So you get the... But if you're going to watch the sunrise, you have to get a bus at half past five in the morning from a town called Aguas Calientes, which is the, the, the kind of the, the jump-off place. So you've got the anticipation of getting up really early, queuing for the bus, having got your tickets the day before, going on the bus with all the other tourists, looking out for views of it in the, in the, the, the half-light, then going through the entrance gate, it's still kind of dark. You go up a pathway. You can see some shadows of Machu Picchu, but you can't really see it. Uh, and then you start to, oh, there's a nice bird. And, oh, I can see a snow-capped mountain over there. And then you can see it, but it's cast in, it's still cast in twilight. And then that moment when the sun comes up and the colours just change. Because suddenly you've got those wonderful hues, you've got the browns, you've got the greens. And it just at that point, with that perfect early morning light, looks like the very best photo you could, could possibly find of it. But you've got that wider perspective and you've got 3D because you haven't just, you've got where you're stood, you've got the, the ancient city sat on its rocks but then you've got the mountain that sits behind it um and then you've got the wider panorama so it just it just brings it to life by being there and then you've then got the opportunity to wander and look at the detail of it and take a million photos but it's i think it's that it's that build up to something that you know is going to be amazing it's like i don't, I don't know if you go to gigs or football matches or whatever but I, I would love the build-up the anticipation as the event starts to you know people start to come in and you know maybe football match you watch the players warm up and you get the music and the mascots and all that slow build gets you to then the thing you've actually come for 
Yeah, of course. And and you made a really good point about the smelling it and, 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 and hearing it. When you're seeing a photo, you're only using your sight. You're not using the rest of your senses. But I guess when you're there, you're in the moment using every single one of your senses. That just makes it come alive. Um, what else? What what more magical moments did you have? So I talked about, I, I could pick so many here, but I'm going to pick one that connects back to what we talked about earlier on, which was about our why and wanting to get family time back. So, and this is a story of things not working out, but actually working out because they didn't work out. So we were, we, uh, east coast of Australia, and we wanted to do that classic uh, trip of a camper van from Sydney up to Cairns and tropical north. Uh, and we were going to do that in three weeks. So we picked up the van in Sydney and bombed it. Uh, because all the all the, the really interesting wildlife stuff's up north. So let's get let's we're not bothered about the gold gold coast. We've got kids, let's just keep going. Um so we basically drove for a couple of days, um got to um place where we could go to the Great Barrier Reef, so we did that. Another place where we could see um turtles uh, hatching on the beach and going out to sea, um various other things. But 60% of Queensland was underwater, were floods. Um, And even though it was officially in drought, which I didn't really understand. And we ascertained that we were not going to be able to drive to Cairns. The road was out further north. There were stories of um, alligators swimming in the... Sorry, crocodiles swimming in the streets and such like. So... We we got to a place called Rockhampton, I think, which is on the Tropic of Capricorn, and decided we couldn't get any further. So we stopped for a couple of days and then were able to switch plans and just take the van back to Brisbane and get a flight from there. And we had a week to play with. So we went back, and this time we didn't bomb through what's called the Sunshine Coast, we stopped with the kids and we spent a week splashing in the waves. We got bodyboards and we just mucked about in the water. We just chilled and it almost, it reconnected us to the why. We wanted quality family time. And all these, you know, going to all these famous places that you've heard of, it wasn't about that. It was about, you know, mum, dad and the two kids being a family and not on the other side of the world. And this was this was February and it was great because, of course, back home, everybody else was shiv- shivering in the middle of winter in the, <laughs> at the start of a recession and we we got away with it. We pulled a fast one and we were, we were living the life. So, yeah, I, I, that always takes me back to just feeling really happy about what we did. Yeah, of course. Oh, do you not spoil us one more and I won't ask again. One more. Okay, one more. Um, so where shall I go um, yeah so we'll go back to South actually, Africa actually let me stop you actually yeah. rather than just asking about another magical moment what is the one moment and you can't mention the ones you already said that you would want to relive again okay and, I, and the one I want to give I've already said so um I'm going to choose me snorkeling with sea lions in the Gal- in the Galapagos Islands. So forget the bit about my daughter nearly drowning. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that yeah. was ha- I couldn't see that was happening because uh, I was in the water myself, and it was quite choppy. And I'm not, I'm not a particularly strong swimmer, um, but my wife could see it all playing out in front of her. She was, I think, her life was in slow motion at that point. Um, but that was all fine. Meanwhile, I'm in. I've I've headed from the boat into the shallows. Uh, I've got a, a waterproof camera. It's his pre GoPro, but I've got a waterproof camera, and I'm just lost underwater with these sea lions, just somersaulting with me and playing with me, and just uh, a bit like when we were in the when I was in the Great Barrier Reef snorkeling. And when you're in that underwater world, and I'm not a diver or anything, but just when you're snorkeling and the wildlife is that good you forget about everything else. You can't be more in the moment than when that's happening. So, 
Yeah, take take me back underwater in the Galapagos Islands. Um, I'd be quite happy. I love it. I love it. Amazing. Did you um? Did you make a lot of friends? We we've made both through that and what followed. We've made some really good friends around the world. So you know, these days there's more families do what we did than used to. Um, but we when we got back. So sorry, sorry. Tell this story first. So before we went away, um, we connected, and I can't even remember how we connected with them. But we connected with a family from uh, Washington D.C. who were about to do the same. So they were taking their two kids, who were a couple of years older than ours, taking them around the world for a year. But they were going in the opposite direction from us. So we both left on the first of July. And they went to South America first. We went to Africa first. And it turned out we were both going to be in, both families were going to be in Australia at the same time. And we met on the steps of the Sydney Opera House on New Year's Day, the two families. So that was, that was really cool. And in the you know, subsequent years, they've been to us. We've been to them. Um, and they've introduced us to, uh, to another family from uh, California who are great friends. And we've been on holiday with them and we've stayed at theirs. Um, we did some, we didn't couch surf when we were away. But when we got back, we did have, have other families come and stayed with us. So couch surf with us. Um, so some friendships through that as well. And that's one of the great things about travel. You know, you just meet people. And, of course, you know, yeah. And I mean, I mean you know, hit it off with some and not with others. But when you when you're doing the same kind of thing, you've immediately got a bond. You've immediately got something in common. So it's a it's a very good starting place for for friendships. Absolutely. I mean, I've got a, I've got a similar story when I was um when I was in trailing around Europe, and um I kind of did my day exploring Rome, and um. In the evening, I went down to kind of the hostel bar area, and that's where I met um, I met this guy from from uh, Ohio, um, and we 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 you know we we got on really well. We had a lo- loads of things in common. You know, we like the same kind of TV shows, and we shared the same humor. And then I kind of told him about my plans, and he told me about his plans, and we were going on very similar kind of places so my next destination was i think it was budapest long story short i met him again in munich at oktoberfest so me and my friend are sitting and we see him walk past i'm like oh my god it's 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 anthony there he is and then again this time it was premeditated we we met again in uh i think it was Prague. it may have been prague we met again then we met for a final time in uh Lake in Como in Italy, um, and then and then I met him again in Dublin. Sorry, so <laughs> so he kind of he would message me on social media going, "Oh, where are you heading to next?" I'd be like, "I'm going to this city." He goes, oh, "I'll be there there this time as well." So let's meet up. So I must have met him about four or five times, and then about three weeks after me and my friend from here finished our trip, um, this guy Anthony was coming to London, the, his last destination before he went back to Ohio. And um, he's like, I'm going to be in London soon. Let's let's meet up for the final time. A long story short, we so we live near um, this area in Hackbridge in Croydon, right? It's a very kind of you know those rundown train stations where trains barely stop and no one ever goes to. We were like, do you know what? Let's take him to our favourite Indian restaurant. Nowhere in London, out in the outskirts of South Croydon in a rundown train station. Me and my friend pulled up and there he was waiting, just in a lonely car park, in the middle of Surrey, away from everyone. <laughs> so, hey, we've gone from Munich to, to, to Como, to Italy, to Dublin, to now East Croydon. Um <laughs> You know, we we had a great we had a great meal. Um, safe to say, he had to probably not used to Indian food, so we had to get a, a seat near the toilet on the aeroplane. But <laughs> going back to kind of friends you meet, it's great. I mean, just as many friends I've got on Facebook that you just don't talk to again, there are many that you just keep up to date with, and and, and you're there for the same reason. So there's that instant rapport. Exactly, exactly. I, I you know I can think of many many stories that's a great one i've met that guy so many times um, <laughs> but it is something about travel that you you 
quite often because you're on the same circuit or a variant of you just keep seeing the same people in, in different places I mean we this Costa Rica trip we did earlier this year um, we spent a week volunteering in an animal rescue centre uh, and there were seven um, I'll call them kids um, gap year students uh, from Bristol the English seven we called them um, and we were with them for about three days they left before we did um, and then about 10 days later, we're on a boat um, two hours into a three-hour journey into a national park. Kind of picture the Amazon. It's that kind of uh, water-based environment. Our boat breaks down um, and the captain can't get it going again. And then we see a boat going past and it stops and it turns and it moves towards us. And as it gets nearer, I suddenly hear, hello, Ian. And there they are. And uh, yeah, they rescue us and their bags go on our boat and we go on theirs and off we go. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, okay, last last story, from the, the boat story reminded me. So we were in, um, a few of us, we went to Croatia and um, we were on a boat, uh, a, a kind of ferry in between two islands. It's a tiny little, I, I don't want to call it a ferry. It was a tiny little dinghy boat, which fit about six or seven people. So we jumped on and there was another group of kind of English guys there. And um, I don't know how it got to this situation, but it turned out that they went to a college which was rivals with my friend's college in uh, in South London. <laughs> so next thing you know, in the middle of Croatia, underneath the stars, it's a beautiful night. You'd expect it to be, you know, everyone in the moment having a good time. Instead, you've got these two sets of people singing songs about each other's colleges <laughs> from Norbury in London. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> oh, no, that was great. That was great. Um, <laughs> Moving on. Um. You know, when you came back home and you, you mentioned you were kind of interviewing for jobs and stuff, how hard was it to settle back in? Because for me, when I get back, it it takes a long time. You kind of get those blues. Um, for me, they last a very long time. How hard was it for you, your kids, your missus? It was different for us all. So my my wife got a job very quickly, thank goodness. Um and she just had to get on with it. She was the main breadwinner, so she just got on with it. Uh, the kids, because their pals didn't really understand it, um, they kind of went into denial for a bit. It just wasn't cool because it wasn't cool with their mates. So uh, meanwhile, I'm at home, um, I guess, running the house and doing all the jobs wrong. Um, and I'm just having flashback time day after day. And every time the kids come home and it's family meal, I'm saying, oh, guess what we were doing this time last year, kids? And they roll their, they roll their eyes. Um, so, yeah, it, it, I'm not sure I've ever got over it. In fact, I'm not sure I ever want to either. Um, but I completely recognize what you say every trip we do. I mean, it's now, I'm on a flight, um, not tomorrow, the day after. Um, and it's what seven weeks since we got back from Costa Rica. It's been a long old seven weeks. You know, I just can't go. I I I'd love to get going again, but I yeah, do I think guess. I do think that you know I believe that travel is good for the soul and it's good for mental health. Um, and although there is that dip afterwards sometimes when you get back, I think that travel is good for your mental health before you go on a holiday or a trip because you've got all that anticipation and planning and excitement. Uh, it's obviously good while you're there, for obvious reasons, but it can also be good afterwards because you've stored up a lot of memories and new experiences and personal growth. Um, and you just got to then get the bridge to the next one. Uh, and I'm fortunate that these days, you know, that's, I spend a lot of my time traveling, so the gaps aren't as long as they used to be. Yeah, I was given some advice once, um, which was um, that you should you should have a holiday or at least time off. I guess it depends on your budget and circumstances. But you should have time off every 12 weeks. And if you think about the amount of annual leave we get in the UK, that's about right. That once a quarter kind of uses your annual leave entitlement in weeks and, to, and maybe one, two-week block. Um and and this guy said, "What the first thing you should do when you get back from holiday is book the next one." 
and I kind of have done that through a lot of my life, actually. So say you get back from holiday on the Saturday, what you'll find me doing on the Sunday while the football's on is I'll be starting to just play on Ryanair websites and all the rest of it and coming up with the idea for the next one. And then you've always got something else to look forward to. So, you know, COVID was about the only time I can remember in a long time when I haven't had a holiday on the calendar. And I didn't like that because I just like having that next one to look forward to. Yeah, of course. So you've kind of built your life around travel now. Mm. What is it that you do kind of day to day that still enables you to live kind of life on your terms and let you travel whenever you want? Well, I I think this wouldn't have happened without the trip uh, and actually that what's the worst that can happen question. So I spent a year being unemployed, finally got a job, hated it, did it for four years. It was my, my port in the storm during the the recession but after four years I there was a way to get out and I just went I, I don't want to do this anymore um, so I started my own business using my skill set um, and over the last eight years I've built that business that it now runs without me um, so you know I have someone that runs it for me I obviously have to oversee it but I don't have to be there um, so that's given us the freedom to be able to travel uh, we're not quite there. There's still some family stuff, but by and large, we have the freedom to be able to travel. Um, so um, that's what we do. That's what we do. So you know, this year is seven weeks in Costa Rica, a week in France on my own, writing that up, uh, which I've done. Um, a couple of weeks in Bulgaria, the next couple of weeks, a couple of weeks in Sicily in June, um, and then current plan is to head to the. The, the states and Canada and do a three month road trip on the the east coast in the in the autumn or the fall as they call it so so it's great it's a very good life so if people are listening now um gonna try and paint a picture of someone stuck in a job they don't like like your like your job they want to make the jump they want to travel more what would you say how, how can they change their life and have a life full of adventure like you have. Yeah, well, I've talked about what's the worst that can happen. So that I think asking that question, working from the end backwards. So what is it that you want and why? And then how can I get there? And having clarity rather than just kind of sleepwalking through. Well, this is my this is my reality. So therefore, that's all there is. What could it be? Why do I want it to be that? And then work backwards and find a try and find a route to it. Um, I'm not necessarily going to advise people to just kind of do what I did and just quit. Um, I was once taught um, that you should always try and build a bridge and then walk across it rather than jump off the end of a gangplank. Um, and I think that's that, that's pretty sound advice. Um, but fundamentally, if you're not happy, I mean, I remember once doing an exercise um, which was a, a, a 80 boxes in a grid. So 80 being the average number of years we'll spend going around the sun in our lifetime. And um, put a tick in each box that was a good year to date. So if you live for 30, if you're 30, there's 30 boxes you're going to fill. You put a cross in if it was a bad year, a tick if it was a good year. Um, and I did this when I was about early 50s and realized there were a few, there were a few crosses and a few ticks, but there were more boxes filled than were empty. And I went, oh, heck, <laughs> I better get on with it. Because if you then look at the, the final five and think, well, they might be rubbish anyway, health or whatever. So not that many to fill. So, you know, that, that, that hackneyed old thing of you only live, one, only live once is really, really important. So, you know, I've seen so many people in the course of my HR career who were just stuck in jobs and miserable. What is the point? And they're typically prisoners. They're prisoners of fear. They're prisoners of insecurity, they're prisoners of their pension, prisoners of their mortgage. But don't be don't be a prisoner. Hmm. Your life, make it what you want it to be. It reminds me of this um, animation. More than others, I get that. But at least yeah, no, of course. Uh, that what you said there reminds me of this cartoon I saw on social media, and it was a. Um, I'm trying to remember now. Um, I think it was a guy who's standing at the top of a, a building. And um, he jumps down um, because he is 
you know he's, he's had it with his life and in his head he starts to picture all his life from when he was born from when he was born to when he was about 20 it was a life full of adventure you can imagine him you know being a child and then going to his friend's house and and playing outside and messing around in the mud and all that kind of thing that kids do then he starts going traveling and meeting new friends and there's this one period from 25 to 60 where the flashback is just him at a desk getting older and 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 then it gets to 70 and finally it's his time to go back to what he was like a child by that point he's hit the floor and he's died yeah um yeah that's pretty powerful it is i like the saying hell on earth is meeting the man that you could have become yes yeah yeah yeah, absolutely. I I only have two more questions. I could sit here and talk to you all day, and I can tell you've kind of changed your position a few times, thinking, "Oh God, is this still going on?" Don't worry. Honestly, this this could keep on going for hours. Um, if there was one place or one experience or one thing that you would recommend our listeners do no matter how much it costs, um, in terms of what impact it could have on their lives, one place in the world, what would it be? I'm going to choose, I've mentioned it, I'm gonna, and it wasn't in a year away, it was the place I went earlier this year, Costa Rica. There is a reason why Costa Rica is at the top of so many people's bucket lists. And it's because the nature there is insane. 30% of the country is national park. Uh, it represents 0.03% of the uh, of the planet's Earth, planet's territory, 0.03%, so it's tiny. But between 5 and 6% of the biodiversity of the planet is in Costa Rica. So that means between 5 and 6% of every species of animal bird, insect, reptile, tree, plant, is in Costa Rica. And that just, it's just like being in the David Attenborough documentary. Uh, In fact, a lot of them are. It's just like being in Jurassic Park, um, which is where a lot of Jurassic Park was filmed. It's just incredible. And I've been to some places and I've seen some wildlife. But you really understand... um, what we're doing to this planet really close up and they've not got it absolutely right in Costa Rica yet they've still got problems with plastic and recycling um, they've still got problems with um, carbon usage and fossil fuels and all of that but you can just see there are areas we'd walk through pristine rainforest that wasn't there 20 years ago that 20 years ago was being had been cleared for, for for cows or had been farmed for bananas or palm oil and they've just let it grow back and it and it, it merges into these primary rainforests with these giant trees i mean only 2% of sunlight reaches the the forest floor in the rainforest because there's just so much going on above and it was just it's humbling but you learn so much as well. So, you know, if I could give anybody one one ticket to go anywhere in the world once, it would be Costa Rica. We're, we're just an ordinary family, but we did an extra, extraordinary thing. And I, I, I realised that. Um, but we, if we were able to do it, then with the right circumstances, anybody can do it. Animals we'd never heard of, like coatis, uh, scarlet macaws but then we were able to go and see them in the wild as well it was just just awe-inspiring I loved it and, and you know that theme of the world is your classroom I learned so much and I was rubbish at science at school absolutely rubbish you know I wasn't I wasn't too bad academically I only failed one exam in my entire school career and it was the only science I took um, but there in the context, I got it and I could understand it with a little bit of uh, of uh, explanations for dummies. So, yeah, amazing. Wow. Last question. Um, and I'm glad you brought up your message about the world being your classroom. What's the one biggest thing the world has taught you? 
That's a great question. One thing the world's taught. I feel like I probably should have sent you these before. No, 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 it's good. It's but good. at least I know the answers are genuine, yeah, not premeditated. Exactly, it gets me thinking. Well, this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cheat because in the, the back of the book is a bonus section and it's the lessons I learned whilst traveling uh, <laughs> and how I applied them to, to growing a business. So I'll pick the very first one in that bonus chapter from Aishas. Um, you're, you're capable of more than you realize. You are capable of more than you realize. Um, so, you know, we're, we're just an ordinary family, but we did an extra, extraordinary thing. And I, I, I realized that. Um, but we, if we were able to do it, then with the right circumstances, anybody can do it. And I was just a, an ordinary HR guy um, in-house for 20 years, sorry, 25 years. Um, but I had an, un, an unexpected ability to adapt myself, uh, chameleon-like, to the, the world of private enterprise and successfully grow a business that could work without me. And I'd never have believed I could do that. So yeah, the the world will, the world's there if you're prepared to back yourself. And who knows what you can, what you can do and what you can achieve. Amazing. I um, I started this podcast kind of more focused towards people that had quite traumatic events in their life and and how it shaped them. Um, so I decided to take an experiment and and veer towards. People that have also had an adventurous life, and I must say, the experiments pass with flying colours. I've not stopped smiling throughout the whole episode. I can only thank you, for, thank you for that, Ian. Um, it's been great. It really has. Absolute pleasure. I'm delighted to share the stories, and uh, you know, our story came out a little bit of adversity as well. It came out of my mother-in-law's tragedy. So, um, but uh, you know, uh, God bless her. We wouldn't be uh, where we were if that, all that stuff hadn't happened. Of course, and your book can be found on Amazon. It can be found on Amazon. Um, um, are we there yet? Um, and if anybody wants to connect on Insta, uh, at Original Family Trippers, yeah, you'll find me there as well.